so awesome to be here with you guys today. <laughs> I'm so grateful to see your faces. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I must admit, when I, when I was looking at this passage, I was, I was somewhat perplexed. In the last verse of the passage, I think Paul does mention how he was a bit perplexed. Uh, and, but I, I, while I was preparing, I just felt um, God dropping some nuggets, which I just love. Uh, I used to teach art. And uh, one of the things about teaching art was that, uh, you know, we would have a, an idea that we would start with and then the, the kids I was teaching high school, uh, they would kind of present their first idea and say, this is what I'm going to do. And I always would say to them, just mine it a bit more. You get the real gems from digging a bit deeper. And, you know, I, I, was, I remember as a kid, you know, going up to the Drakensberg and finding those dusty red quartz crystals and thinking I'd found a treasure. And my parents kind of being, oh, goodness, there's like tons of this stuff here. <laughs> um, and I, I felt like my high school students were like that a bit, uh, that, you know, they found these dust, dusty quartz crystals and this was, this was their big idea. Uh, and so I always encouraged them to just mine a bit deeper uh, because that's where you find the real gems, and, and I feel like I, I managed to find some gems here. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you feel the same way. Uh, either way, I, I had fun. <laughs> so master or slave. Um, and so, you know, the, you're normally supposed to have like three points and a conclusion. These three points are three, three ways of looking at the same passage or three filters of looking at the same passage, and they're not... Uh, they're not um, three different ways of looking at the same passage in the sense of conflicting ways, but just three angles that we can take on the same passage. And uh, that's, that's what I find really exciting about this little bit, uh, especially these, these between bits. We had Mark sharing on Galatians um, 3, uh, the end of uh, Galatians 3, um, and coming into the beginning of 4 about sonship and what it means to be a son. And then again next week, uh, looking at um, the slave woman and the free woman and, and, you know, these kind of major passages. And, and when I was doing research on this, the, one of the, the scholars or a couple of them were saying that actually the, this, this Galatians 4 coming up uh, about Hagar and Sarah and uh, the child of the promise and, and those, all of that kind of thing is, is actually uh, considered by many to be the, the climax of the book. That it's Paul, this is what Paul is kind of laying the groundwork for. And so this bit, he's doing it just before his main bit. There's got to be something that he's, he's trying to get across as a, as a key into the, the, you know, what he's um, doing as the, the climax of a story. And so what I like about this is that we see Paul's heart, not just his theology, uh, his heart for his people. And, and I, I remember once uh, wanting to do a study, but, but kind of working, it worked out that it, it's just become a thing that I do when I read Paul is... What do we see about Paul's heart? What, what do we see about the heart of an apostle through how Paul writes and how he says what he's saying? Uh, and it's a really fascinating study. Just one of those little things to keep in your mind as, you, as you're reading Paul is what, what does an apostolic heart look like? So the three things I'm going to be looking at is something called the Jewish exemption, uh, a bit of the context, then a bit of what masters you, uh, so our personal application thing, and then God is storyteller, and that's zooming out into the big picture of how this fits into uh, Scripture as a whole. As a whole. Sorry, that's a bit bigger on my screen, but uh, <laughs> we had to translate through a few formats to to get it because our technology wasn't going. So I'll read it. Don't worry. But I promise it's bigger on my screen. At work, whenever something doesn't work, we in computers, someone's like, I can't get this to work. 
works on metaverse. <laughs> Most annoying thing you can hear from tech support. It works on metaverse. Anyway, so um, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Yeah. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? In the last section, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Okay, so I wanted to just get that all in there so that when we, when we look at these, each of these things covers a bit of that whole passage. And so I want to start with the, the Jewish exemption. I found this really fascinating. In the Roman provinces, the Jews had different degrees of exemption from the Roman uh, Roman laws, including their, their idol worship and their worship of Caesar. And they were the only group to have this exemption. Okay, so each of the Roman provinces had a, had a slightly different take on it. Um, and religion in Rome is not religion how I grew up with religion, where if you went to church or not, that was your own business. And uh, it, was, it was public worship. And, so, uh, and it was public worship of Caesar and of the Roman gods. And so there was, no, there was no getting out of it. It was just a thing that everybody did. Uh, and so when he talks about the days and weeks and months, he's also referring to the, the Roman procession. So we often, when, we, when we're looking at it specifically about the Judaizers, we're thinking of the, the, the Jewish festivals and feasts. But it's like Paul is doing a double, a double thing here, saying whether you're doing the Roman days and months and weeks and, and, and or, you know, all of their festivals and processions, or whether you're doing the Jewish days and months and whatever, he's saying it's both slavery. And so in this Roman religion, everyone was required to take part. Household gods were honored daily at your meal. It wasn't just a once a week thing. It was, it was absolutely a, a punctuation to every hour of your day. Uh, there was some kind of involvement from uh, the gods, the powers, Caesar. There were statues of Caesar everywhere that you were, you were required to honor and all of those kinds of things. Um, and if something bad happened, it was believed that the gods were angry because they hadn't been worshipped or appeased sufficiently or because the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. There was always a reason why they were unhappy. So you can imagine that the Jews having an exemption to this meant that they were treated with a bit of suspicion. Uh, and if there was someone to blame, <laughs> it was them. Um, so public worship wasn't something you could get out of without drawing attention or suspicion. And uh, the reason that they were given this, this, uh, this exemption, they were monotheists. Obviously, in, in Roman culture, that was very the antithesis 
of, uh, of Roman religion. Uh, and so the deal was, you pray to your one God for Rome and for Caesar, and we'll let you pray to your one God. And so uh, instead of, they were then subject to the Sanhedrin. You hear about the Sanhedrin and the temple tax and all of those. Those were kind of Roman concessions uh, to allow the Jews to continue in the, worship, the way that they worshipped. And while they were a minority, they, on the whole, they took up about 10% of the population. So they were still quite a significant, uh, quite a significant minority. But uh, they were the only group to have this exemption. And so passing as Jewish could help them stay under the radar, new Christians. This new monotheistic thing that had come up uh, was considered a threat to Rome, a threat to Roman stability, uh, a threat to Roman culture. And Great, thank you, yes. So monotheistic, mono meaning one, uh, theistic, theo, uh, theo is uh, God, and whereas Rome was polytheistic, they had, uh, their religion was many gods, and uh, Judaism, monotheistic, one God, and so for Christianity to come and say, we're the new monotheists, <laughs> uh, was, was considered an affront uh, to, uh, to Roman things. Also, uh, Christianity was, was highly offensive to Roman culture. Roman was all about imperialism, about force over, about, um, about pride, uh, and, and about strength and, uh, and domination, whereas, whereas Christianity was about servanthood. It was about humility. It was about power under. It was about love. And so even what was preached by Christianity, not only the fact that they were monotheistic, but even what they preached was considered, uh, was considered an insult um, to Roman culture to say this is the way, uh, kind of was, was snubbing uh, Roman culture and, and religion. So so, in, to some extent, it could be that the Judaizers, who were kind of saying, just let's abide by the Jewish stuff, could have been well-intentioned. That they were trying not to rock the boat, trying to say, well, if we just pretend to be Jewish, because there were some provinces, Roman provinces, where the, uh, the proconsul had said, this is an internal matter with you Jews. If you want to, some of you be circumcised, and some of you not, and some of you eat whatever, and some, it's not my problem. And so they weren't too worried about it. But in Galatia, there were a lot of retired soldiers. There was a lot of uh, that imperialism, a lot of that pride for Rome. And so there wasn't that same degree of, of allowance. It really was considered uh, quite a, a thing. <laughs> and so what does this mean for us? And I think uh, where we see this, in, even in South Africa, I know for uh, many of our Jewish, um, Jewish folk, our Zulu folk, experience something like this when it comes to worship of ancestors. It's something that's really enmeshed in everyday life, not a birthday, not a, an event, not a, not a week goes by with some kind of acknowledgement uh, of the ancestors. And to opt out of that draws negative attention. Who do you think you are? Uh, and also then arise, gives that same suspicion as, you know, when something goes wrong, the ancestors are angry because you're not doing what you were supposed to do. Uh, because you're not participating in uh, these, these rites. And I think that's really similar to what um, Paul is addressing um, when he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And I think when we see it in that context, 
uh, I think it, it is quite a direct affront to the, the ancestor worship that we see, even amongst many churches that still continue to combine uh, ancestor worship and worship of, of God. Uh, I think this is a scripture that can very convincingly actually say this is not God's best for us. Having said that, though, what does that mean to me? <laughs> That's not been something I've had to deal with. Um, and so that seems an obvious parallel, uh, but I, I feel like there's some not-so-obvious parallels as well. And so that leads me to the next point. What masters you? And so I think for many of us, a desire for acceptance, for love, for a new life. You know, so often people say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm heading off for a new life. This is going to give me a new life. This job is going to give me, the education is going to give me a new life. There's, there's this real desire for a new life, something that's not got the same problems as what I have now. Security, fulfillment. These are all great desires. There's nothing wrong with those. Um, we all desire to feel like we have some control over things. Um, I think we're legalists at heart. We like the idea of, that if I, I put that in like a vending machine, I put five rand in, and I, okay, you don't get a Coke for five rand anymore. <laughs> when I was at Varsity, you got a Coke for five rand. Um, you put five rand, I don't think you can get anything out of a, out of a vending machine for five rand these days. My bad. Um, <laughs> you put your money in and you get your thing out. Wouldn't that be so great uh, if it worked like that? Then we could have total control over everything. Wouldn't that be awesome? No, sorry. <laughs> but we're legalists at heart. We really love, actually, that, that this for that. You know, we put this in, we'll get that out, guaranteed. And so often, that's what we're promised by so many things. You put this in, that's exactly what you're going to get out. All of those things that you desire, that's what you're going to get out. And I think that's why the gospel offends. Because in so many ways, it, it slips out of that. So, I mean, Jesus, even just with his parables... He never answers the question, really. <laughs> he never answers the question that they, that, they, that they spoke, but he answers the question of their hearts. They don't get what they think they want, but they get what they actually need. And isn't that so much better, actually? Uh, but I think for so many, that's, that sense of not having control, even though it's an illusion of control anyway, um, that uh, that can be part of the, the offense of the cross. There are many who are zealous for our attention, um, and I'll get to the, some masters are obviously bad things that master us, but they're not necessarily bad in themselves. Um, some, sorry, some are obviously bad, but not always bad in themselves. And what this got me thinking is that in the same way there was Roman religion, there's so many things in our culture that people get very religious about. And I'm sure as I'm saying that, people are starting to think, hmm, yes, I know some people who are religious about the right way to make coffee, for example. I'm pretty religious about the right way to make tea. I have a very set way of making tea. There's order in which you do things, and if you mess up the order, it's not going to work. Um, just as a, as a minor example, um, shame Hans knows. <laughs> Did you boil this water properly? Yes. <laughs> it has to be a rolling boil. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has to it has to be it has to be it's got to be perfect. I'm not going to sing it now, but <laughs> Yeah, Amelia knows, Amelia knows. <laughs> when we go up to the Drakensberg, it's the worst. I can't get the order to the right tea temperature and I just 
just tastes horrible. I've got to drink something else when they go to the berg. Anyway, <laughs> so people can get quite particular about things. Uh, people can get quite religious about their diet. They can get religious about their exercise regime. They can get religious about particular brands. They can get religious about, about materialism, about just wanting the latest and the best of things. We can get religious about pets, which seems like such an innocuous thing. How can one be religious about pets? But people can be religious ab about all sorts of things. And people can be religious about their work. They can be religious about a particular preacher. They can be religious even about church. And I feel like what Paul is saying here is that these are weak and miserable forces that, that, that are not going to be able to give you what they promise. There's some other more, more controversial items that we can be religious about. I'm not going to mention them now just because it'll be a distraction, but I, I thought of those, those were reasonably innocuous. But with each of, each of these things, especially some of the bigger issues, they offer a narrative that makes sense of the world in the midst of change. They offer a diagnosis of social problems. If only everybody believed this, it would all be fine. Usually oversimplified. If you just do this one thing in your diet, you know, the number of adverts you see on Instagram or Facebook, I, did, I changed this one thing and I lost all the weight that I wanted to, to usually totally oversimplified. Um, and then often you'll find these, these, these things that, uh, you know, they offer someone to cheer for, someone to, you know, support to say, this is going to be the figurehead to sort out this evil in, in society. Um, these things offer a sense of belonging. Uh, you know, we, we are all people who support this brand. I know that's a horrible example. I just don't want to get into all the controversial ones. That's the easy ones. <laughs> but they offer an in-group um, that, uh, that depends on what you say, what you do, what you believe. There's a whole lot of uh, things that you need to adjust to be part of this in-group rather than just being accepted for who you are. And so Paul's dealing with a similar thing here. Uh, he keeps going back to how much of a counterfeit that is because each of these things promises you something that it cannot deliver on. Uh, you know, the, the diet that you, that you are following, the, the brand that you, you know, often, and you see that a lot with uh, car brands. You know, you see somebody driving this car and it's not overtly said, if you drive this car, you'll have this life. But just in the way that it's, it's illustrated, it's, it's promising something, it's a car that gets from A to B. Some are marginally more comfortable than others and some go somewhat faster than others uh, and they cost different amounts. But it's not going to make you a different person. It's not going to change your heart. It's not going to give any lasting feeling that you belong or that you are loved or that you are accepted or and it's not going to give you peace. Those things are not going to give you peace and they're not bad in and of themselves. Tea is wonderful. I think tea is amazing, <laughs> but when I trust tea to, <laughs> to fill the hole in my heart, the perfect cup of tea is going to be just what I need to get through my day, it's not going to work. <laughs> when I say that the church is going to meet all of my needs, no, it's not the church, it's God through the church, yes, but if I start to idolize church, if I start to idolize a brand, if I start to idolize a person, put those things on a pedestal, try and make them something that they're not then I'm worshiping them and they're becoming idols and they will never, ever, ever satisfy. Amen. <laughs> Even your spouse, it's true. 
And I think, <laughs> I, I must tell you, that's actually, thank you. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that while I was preparing, but I remember thinking uh, as, as a, a young Christian lady that there was so much crazy pressure on husbands that like to be Christ-like, you know, that they had to, and I remember the girls when I was, when I was in church, just like, you know, the husbands they were looking for, I thought, shucks, you, you're asking for Jesus, basically. Their, their list was like Jesus. I said, find Jesus and he'll find you a husband. Don't look for your husband to be Jesus. I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but anyway. <laughs> but, but I think so often people looking for a husband or wife, find Jesus. Find Jesus. What, what, and then he'll, he'll help you find the person that, that, or someone that he's, he's got for you. Don't, don't look for, don't expect your husband or wife to be Jesus for you. It's never going to work. Actually, how can I be Jesus to you is what we need to be doing, not can you be Jesus for me. Never, never, never going to work. All right. Um, and so sometimes we look at these things and we go, we feel a bit smug. I never fall for something like that. I'd never obsess over a car brand. I'm not that kind of person. Um, but I think we need to be careful. Um, and this occurred to me while I was, while I was preparing, and, and it really struck me. That's why I've given it its own little slide, which you can definitely read now, I hope. <laughs> Anything that temporarily quenches an unmet need without actually meeting it can become addictive. Anything that temporarily meets an unmet need without actually meeting it can become addictive. And so that we have a need to, to live in righteousness. We have that need to be united with God. We have that need to be accepted, to be loved, to have some control of our lives, to have some power over our destiny, to have some say-so, some decision-making power in our lives. And there's so many things that promise fulfillment of those needs, but they can never deliver they might deliver for a second, or five seconds, or five minutes, or half an hour, or two weeks, but they can never really, really fill that gap. They can never actually meet the need that you're trying to meet. And so I mentioned some things that were not bad in and of themselves. Uh, you know, work, work is a thing that we do, uh, but it can be something that, that we idolize, but it's a good thing. We're called to work and, and be productive. But there's also unhealthy things that we see coming out of this. Things like pornography, unhealthy sex addiction, um, and, and even gaming, um, alcohol, drugs, uh, prescription medication, even we think of you know, somehow that's, that's slightly better. All of these things can, can meet an unmet need. There are good places for things like prescription medication, but if we're using them to meet a need that should be met in Jesus, then we need to reevaluate. We need to reevaluate, say, Jesus, what are these things that I'm, I'm relying on, that I'm trusting, that I'm having faith in to meet these needs that's not you? And how can I, how can I get that uh, from you? So what's the remedy? And Paul says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate us, so alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. So to be, to be passionate about exercise, to be passionate about something, to, to, to love, you know, your car, you, to appreciate it for what it does for you. These are not wrong things, but provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. And so he then says, I'm not your enemy, 
by, by pointing this out. The real enemy is the one wanting to enslave you. So how can you tell the difference between something that enslaves you and something that just requires healthy commitment? There are some things that we've just got to commit to. We've got to put energy. We've got to put time. We've got to put resources into them. How do we tell the difference between something that is enslaving me and something that's ma- that, uh, that I, I say, what is, is it my master or is it my slave? And, and sometimes it can look the same on the outside. Only you can know your heart, whether something has mastered you or not. One of the ways, I'm just, just to check uh, on the, where do you get your life value and acceptance? These are not necessarily bad things in themselves, but when they uh, have a significant effect on your decision-making, they consume your time, your resources and energy that way, in ways, things that draw you away from the things of God, let's reevaluate. Not just because God's trying to be a meanie and take you away from the things that are fun, but because he's got a call on your life. And he's got a destiny in, in, in your life, and he's got things for you to do. The one way that you can tell whether something has mastered you is if you find yourself feeling smug or contemptuous or prideful about a particular thing. Uh, If you find yourself responding with ridicule or scorn or disdain to someone who, who believes or does or doesn't believe, believes or does differently or doesn't believe or do what you're doing, if you find yourself thinking, at least we're not like them, a little bit of a sense of superiority, rather. Check that there's not a self-righteousness on your side, because you think, I don't do drugs. I'm not like that. But there's no space for self-righteousness in God's people. When we start getting a sense of self-righteousness about anything, then my concern is check that that thing is not mastering you instead of you mastering it. The promise in Deuteronomy is that you'll be the head and not the tail. And where that was a promise for obedience, now we can receive that promise because of Jesus', Jesus obedience. He says, you'll be the head and not the tail. You'll be the borrower and not the lender. And I feel like I want to encourage people here today. With, with the, the stresses and strains that we've been under, people are, are feeling pulled in all directions. And where you're feeling like the tail and not the head, I feel like God's saying, I want to restore you to a place of being the head and not the tail in your life. I want to restore you to being a place that's the head and not the tail in your life. The other thing, the other way that you can find if something masters you is if it's never enough, never satisfied. You can run 40 kilometers, 40 kilometers is not enough. 45, 45 is not enough. 50, 50 is not enough. 55, I've got to keep going until I, uh, until I, I don't know, run for a week or two weeks or whatever. It's just never enough. And then when you've got your distance, then I've got to get it faster. I've got to, that's never satisfied. Running is not a bad thing. Exercise is not a bad thing. But when it, it's you wanting satisfaction from that thing, and it's not giving you the satisfaction. It's just never enough. It's always out of reach. Just lose one more kilogram. Just get a slightly more expensive car. Just get this, just one more thing. That's enslavement. Just one more. One more drink. One more game. Just one more. The other remedy for this is to center Jesus, to center Jesus. So often you talk, people talk about a work-life balance. That sounds exhausting. I hate the idea of balance. 
makes me think of someone walking a tightrope. One false move, and it's done. It's gone. Everything's, everything's in Afrikaans. And say kanon, and I hope that's not rude. Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I say Afrikaans things, and I don't realize how. <laughs> but, um, and, and that's exhausting. That is a law way to live. If you don't stay exactly on this right perfect... Sorry, that's me going too far forward. If you don't stay exactly on this right balance, on this exact point... If you just slip the tiniest bit, you're gonna, it's all gone. That's law. What is the grace antidote? And I, I, I don't know if, if this was a God revelation or I heard it from somewhere else, but it's something that I, I, I keep, that I carry with me, is that centering Jesus. I don't have a balanced life. Balance is overrated. <laughs> I don't want to be a balanced Christian, actually. I want to be a radical Christian. And that's not a balanced thing to be. That's a radical thing to be. I want to be a centered Christian. I want to be a centered Christian. That Jesus is absolutely the center of everything and everything else fits around him. Then, then everything else is in orbit. Everything is... is Held, and if something needs to go, it can go. Jesus is the center and the foundation and the rock, and everything finds its meaning through him, not in and of itself. And it seems a bit of an ethereal thing to think about. It feels a bit out there, but, but I really encourage you to, to look at what are the things that are close to the center and what are the things on the periphery, what are the things that really you know, pull into what God is calling you, and what are the things that you know, are peripheral, don't need to be. And then if those are, are pulling other things out, find ways to, to deal with them. Ask God, he's got solutions for you. <laughs> Alrighty. And then my final point uh, is, I promise it's not as long as the last one, <laughs> um, is God a storyteller. What I love about these bits of the Bible, especially from verse 11, uh, it's like... Um, Paul switches to personal mode rather than theological mode. Uh, and where he, says, um, where he says, you know, I'm perplexed about you and, you know, have I wasted my time? All of those kinds of things. Uh, we see Paul, the human being, coming out, the, the, the apostle who feels like a dad and wants, wants the, the communities that he's ministered to, to to really live in the fullness of what God has called them to. And I just, I, I love that about Scripture. Because what it does is it gives us such a richness. God could have just given us a list. (laughs) He could have given us a checklist. He could have given us a book of rules. Why, why, you know, why did Paul not just give us a systematic theology? There you go. Why not? (laughs) That would have been so much easier. Why include poetry, allegory, metaphor, songs, wisdom, proverbs, apocalyptic writing, and parables? Why include that alongside the law and the history and the prophets, prophets and Paul's theological diatribes? Why bring all of that to, into this, this one book? Why didn't God make it self-evident? <laughs> why, why do some things just not seem as obvious as we'd like them to be? Uh, it would have been so much easier for us to check all the right boxes if there were boxes to check. <laughs> um, 
a book of rules or prescriptions, a recipe book. I love recipe books. You do that and this is what you get. But God says, no, that's not, that's not what I've got for you. That's not what I want for you. A formula. Come on, if only. Um, and so when we try to take non-prescriptive sections of Scripture and we make them into rules, we shoehorn them into like a list of things to do, a how-to, we miss out on the richness of the relationship that God is inviting us into. That's God's invitation. He lays out the story, his testimony, of how he's engaged with humanity, with his creation. He lays out the story and he says, what are you going to do about it? You choose. I could have given you a list. I could have given you a this is how it works. But he says, this is me. This is how I've engaged with you over all of these years. You choose. With all of its messiness, with all of its human fallibility that we see so often in Scripture, he meets people where they're at, and he carries on drawing them closer and closer in his grace, and he never gives up on them. And so for me, the fact that the Bible includes all of these things, metaphor, parable, songs, poetry, all of those things, that is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of him, his invitation into relationship to say, God, what's going on? What is this thing that you've got here for me to mine deeper for the gems that he is only too happy to give us? Even if you take the Bible seriously as the word of God, people can make it say all sorts of things. Usually, they'll make it say things in line with their character. But we want to see the character of God, and we know that any picture of God that doesn't, that's any picture of God that doesn't match Jesus, the Bible tells us itself, he is the picture of God. He is the image of God. He is the, the essence of God. The everything of God is encapsulated in Jesus. And that's really the key that we have for the Bible is, is how does this reflect Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? How does this contrast with Jesus? How, where do we see Jesus here? And that's one of the keys that we can, that we can take this Bible and, and understand what, what God is really trying to do with the stories. He's a great storyteller. And so for one of the last things I want to say uh, is that what story is he telling in your life? What story is he telling? Ask him, say, God, what story are you telling with my life? What are you wanting to show about your character in my life? And then why is Paul writing this? The last, last thing, why is Paul writing this? He wants people to experience the full shalom of Christ. The full shalom, health in all areas, wellness in all areas, righteousness, full righteousness of God, that absolute full life experience of God's grace. He's saying, I don't want anything less for you. As your apostle, as your father in the Lord, I don't want anything less for you. And so I encourage you today, don't accept anything less than the full shalom that Jesus paid for, for each and every single one of us. Anything else is a counterfeit and will never satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. Amen. Don't go, you know, just pray for people. Uh, Paul, Paul ends that passage by saying, I'm once again in the throes of childbirth, the pain of childbirth, in order to see Christ formed in you. It comes from a place of, you had gods that weren't gods. Why are you going back to those miserable principles and trying to 
satisfy yourself through other things and people and, and materialism, whatever. He says, I came to you in humility. I, I, was, I was sick at the time when I came to, came to you. And you were so, so caring that you would have even torn your eyes out. You, you, loved, you showed so much love to me. Why is it now you're going back to selfishness? When you, you've shown how much compassion and love you've got, I want Christ to be born in you again because Jesus is love. And the hermeneut of Scripture, as Lee said, is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And when we have a revelation of Christ in us and who He is, then suddenly we go to the Scripture differently and find our fulfillment, not in our partner, not in our acquisitions, not in our possessions, but in who he is within us. And let's stand up together. We've we, we got a few minutes just to, to minister now. And, and if you feel like things have kind of got in the way and become your measure of self-worth or your, your measure of self-righteousness or, or the thing that you think by by doing that, it's going to fulfill you. But you're finding out, like the woman at the well, that that water run, is running dry. And no matter how many times you fill that bucket, it just gets dry again. This is, just a, this is a message Lee shared this morning to meet that need and fulfill it. So if, if you'd like even someone just to lay hands on you, there's an impartation when we do that. No one's going to ask you why you're coming out. I'll come out because I want to line up with the Scripture. But just to have someone lay hands on you and pray for you often releases something and lifts that, that stone off the, a blocked well in your life. So we're going to have a few minutes. I'm going to ask Lee to pray and minister. And then anyone who wants to come out, let's have some ministry time. If anyone does specifically want prayer, now's your moment. There'll be people to pray for you, but I will pray for everyone as well. Lord, as we've just gone through a time of, of things being a bit all over the place, just with COVID interrupting things the way they've been, people are looking, people are looking for, for that, that story to fit into. They're looking for that community to belong to. And we've seen how so many things that we put our trust in could be, could be taken away so quickly could be restricted, could be cut off. And it's just a reminder for each of us to refocus on you. When I feel like, you know, somebody trying to um, uh, <laughs> pick up eggs and just dropping them all over the place. <laughs> you're trying to, to gather something together and you're just not, not uh, succeeding. And I, I feel like God just saying, just be centered once again. Just be centered. You know, when a wheel's out of alignment, it gets a wobble and it just puts everything out. God's just saying, bring, bring, come into alignment. Tuck yourself into me. Just like that, that eye of the storm is the quiet place. He's saying, come into that quiet place right in the middle. Let everything else be going on around you. Come into that quiet place, that place of stillness with me. He says, together we can arrange everything else. With me, we can arrange everything else around around 
we'll fit it in. Don't worry. We'll, we'll figure it out. But we've got to start with that center. We just say, Lord, for any areas of our lives where we've, we've not acknowledged you as the center and the source, we just come and offer those to you now.